0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Critical Theory Channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Louisa Han, and I'm really pleased to be joined today by Sita Palani to discuss her new book, Deadly and Slick, Sexual Modernity and the Making of Race. Sita is a lecturer in English at Queen Mary University of London and the co-author of Empire's Endgame. She's appeared in such publications as Vice, Tribune, Salvage, an open democracy and such platforms as bar media and bbc Sita is also a regular speaker at events on anti-racism feminism education sexuality and colonial history Sita welcome to the show how are you today i'm good thank you great to be here great thank you so much for coming on to talk about your book um so just to give li- listeners um just an idea of what's um in deadly and slick the book looks at the ways in which The notion of race retains a kind of a sense of authenticity and immutability through its embeddedness in in modern sexuality and um, narratives about sexual difference. Um, You focus in particular on kind of the racialization of British Asians tracking the regulation of sexual life in colonial India through to contemporary Britain um i found this approach really kind of elucidating in terms of um the ways in which it overcomes some of the the impasses we encounter with discussions of intersectionality which um can often conceptualize race and sexuality as um these kind of flat kind of vectors on a graph that cross over at certain points but are otherwise discrete really um rather than you know things that are messily intertwined in often quite surprising ways. So with all of this in mind, I'm wondering how you came to write the book. Thanks,
2: that was a really great uh, summary of what the book is trying to do. Um, I start, in some ways, the germ of the book um, came when I was, as I was watching the events of the War on Terror unfold, um, and thinking about how peculiar it was to watch race and sexuality kind of transform in real time so the war on terror really accelerates the process by which the category of british asian which was of course always varied and internally contradictory um but that becomes really divided into new categories into the category of the muslim as a kind of separate and threatening racial other And through that process, Hindus and to some degree Sikhs get kind of folded back into the story of national belonging. Um, And watching that happen in the kind of early 2000s, at the same time as watching the meteoric rise of gay rights, uh, I felt that that these two developments had something to do with each other, but couldn't really find a way of fully understanding that. And I think Jasbir was uh, terrorist assemblages and her coining of homo-nationalism helps get some of the way there. But I started to be interested in the sort of historical antecedents of that. So I wrote my PhD between 20, what was it, 12, 13 and 16 and wrote quite a contemporary account of these developments um, and then by the time it was finished it felt like we were sort of entering a new conjuncture in many ways um, with the Brexit vote and this kind of shifting sands of capitalist crisis so I felt like if I just continued to try and track these developments in the present, I'd always be outrun by history before I managed to publish anything. Uh, so I thought, let me let me follow this hunch that there's a set of historical antecedents here. Um, and I went back and tried to do that work and tried to think about how the history of the british empire and particularly its relationship with the subcontinent could sort of illuminate some of this without simply saying everything is the result of the colonial endeavor because clearly things get remade in the present so i wanted to understand those relationships and really the book kind of developed from there
1: Mm -hmm. and we'll go into kind of the particulars of these developments throughout the rest of the podcast but sort of to begin with um We'll start with a little bit of the theory side, a little bit dry, but anyway, Um, one of the first things that struck me um, when kind of reading the introduction to the book was the way in which um, you kind of understand sexual norms and practices through this kind of Gramscian strand of cultural studies that's, you know, best exemplified, I suppose, by uh, scholars like Stuart Hall, Raymond Williams, etc., while acknowledging a kind of a divergence from some of the orthodoxies of queer theory, which might appear at first glance to align better with like a a kind of a study of sexual histories. So can you talk a little bit um, about what you find useful in in this kind of this Gramscian approach and your book's relationship with queer theory?
2: Great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Maybe I'll take the queer theory bit first. So I found queer theory really generative um, in my own intellectual formation, in its willingness to look at norms of heterosexual life um, and subject them to a kind of scrutiny. But I think one of the limits, I think something about like Michael Warner's uh, writing on how on marriage, for example, I think generative, but it often ends up falling into this peculiar and to my mind untenable trap of celebrating sexual diversity as resistant as though going to a sex club is a kind of politically useful act and i just find that very hard to sustain as an idea um it doesn't seem to me that being into s&m or being queer is in any way kind of useful as a political project it's just a reality and you know every time uh, kind of, con- I mean, this happens less these days, so I think we can talk about why, but any time an MP or whatever is caught having sex with a rent boy, it's not that this MP is suddenly a kind of political radical. They're usually Tory frontbenchers. So it seems to me that this idea that, that sexual deviance, if, you, if we want to still use that term, is the site of political radicalism needs quite a lot of reworking in the era of putative sexual freedom in the era of the incomplete but still quite powerful capitalist iteration of the sexual revolution. So I just I found that in queer theory increasingly hard to stomach. The sort of celebration of sexual difference seemed a bit empty at this point. Um So I kind of wanted to diverge from that because I think it takes sexuality as a category already a bit for granted and then celebrates its expressive possibilities. Whereas to my mind, its expressive possibilities are very effectively used against us, right? Sexual freedom is in some ways, I think, the thing we're offered as a sort of compensation for the deteriorating conditions of everyday life and that's where i think the kind of more gramscian cultural studies approach really helps is because it allows us to think about how particular elements function in the total social formation so stuart hall says you know that there's that the whole social formation is racialized rather than thinking about racism as this like totally discrete dynamic and i find that investment in contradiction and living in the contradiction and trying to understand it really useful and i think this idea of hegemony rather than like merely domination um is is important because it shows the ways in which power has to have some element of seduction in it like it doesn't work as it, there are limits to what you can do through sheer domination um and the That more Gramscian approach allows us to understand how we submit to and involve ourselves in and participate in the conditions of, in the end, our own marginalisation or oppression or limitation without seeing that as false consciousness, but seeing that as a kind of consciousness. So for me, that approach, because it allows for some of that contradiction to really live, um, to live and breathe, I think is much more useful to my own understanding And as just a kind of final element, I think it's understanding of the nation and nationalism as this essential um, site for the resolving of those contradictions is really important. And I think sometimes the American queer theory, which is where a lot of this comes from, um, is so focused on the American situation that it almost fails to conceive of it as a national one.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. Um, So kind of by looking at the development of sexuality through these ideas, you arrive at this this broad notion of sexual modernity as a framework for which to understand your case studies. So just give us an idea of what sexual modernity means in your book and where it it kind of diverges from this Foucauldian queer theory understanding of the history of sexuality.
2: Yeah, great. Um, So sexual modernity, I think of as having two parts. Like one part is its promise. That's the promise that if we explore or embrace the possibility of romantic love or more recently sexual adventure we will find a kind of fulfillment so the idea that sexuality is foundational to the self and that the authentic pursuits of it will help us self-realize as individuals and that in some ways is just the kind of ordinary waters we swim in um almost every bit of popular media points us in this direction from Love Island to whatever the latest Pride and Prejudice remake is. Um, so there's that. And I think that's very familiar. And in many ways, that's what Foucault's work is about. It's about that process by which we come to understand ourselves as sexual subjects. And we come to understand that the pursuit of that will offer self-realisation. But I think that this is only half the story. So the fact of this possibility of sexual freedom has not done away with sexual violence. It has not done away with sexual violence in its spontaneous or its organised iterations. So, you know, we still see, for example, surrounding big extractive projects like mines or pipelines, that sexual violence is endemic, Um and we still see that in context of war or deindustrialization, forms of sexual violence tend to take hold. Um, the state sanctioned sexual violence in prisons, in refugee camps, all of this is, very, is still very much with us. In fact, in many ways, we might think of it as accelerating. So it seems to me that we can't really talk about sexuality without looking at some of that too. And I think these developments are more connected than they're given credit for. So while the kind of Foucauldian lens gives us a lot to think about, about power and pleasure and how they play out. He talks about those spirals of power and pleasure. Um, by taking the male European bourgeois subject as his uh, person, as his subject of concern, Foucault kind of ignores both gender and the colonies. So women's experience of early capitalist modernity is quite different from men's and it continues to be and the imperial hinterlands are just as important for the making of sexuality as what's going on in Europe so I wanted to kind of return those to the story and from that I think we get uh, a kind of sexual modernity that is both the possibility of freedom and the omnipresence
1: of violence. Mm. So let's kind of talk about how this kind of sexual modernity developed, I suppose, in your second chapter, you explain that <clears throat> like a constitutive element of the emergence of, of sexual modernity is um, um, a move towards studying the natural sciences around the enlightenment away f- from, I suppose, medieval understandings of the body as an element of a wider divine order. How did the move to taxonomize nature and people and the attendant development of theories of evolution come to, to shape understandings of sex, gender and race?
2: So it's a, it's a long and complicated story and one that I think has often um, in our moment and in studies of race in particular really focused on Darwin uh, mm. and the idea of natural selection. But I found that if we go, if we sort of start the story slightly earlier with the Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus, we get a slightly different set of coordinates. So botany was emerges as a kind of distinct subject of study in the move from thinking about plants as medicinal uh, to thinking about them as requiring taxonomy for its own sake. So colonial expansion means the number of plants known in Europe quadruples in less than a century and the question of how to organise that new, how to make knowledge of this new information uh, comes through taxonomy so I found it kind of fascinating that the Linnaean system of taxonomy, which is the one we still use today basically, so if you've ever heard anyone say animal, vegetable or mineral that's from Linnaeus Um and he categorised plants by the, by their sexual characteristics. Now, basically, all plants are have both. If you want to think of it as sexual reproduction, have both sexual parts. But this idea that plants were to use the language of the time, hermaphrodites, didn't sit well with the uh, emerging idea of gender in in Europe in early modern Europe. So, instead. Uh, Linnaeus starts to conceptualise plants through the relation of their male and female parts. So the male parts determine the class and the female parts determine the order. Um, So again, we see the hierarchy of man over woman there. Um, And I thought this was completely fascinating that at the time in which plants are being categorised so are humans and humans are also being categorised by sexual difference so racial difference was understood to be most clearly seen in the se- secondary sexual characteristics of the, of the human animal so breasts mostly there's all these bizarre um, scientific diagrams of, of women's breasts so and, and trying to kind of categorise them racially on that basis so it seems to me that in some ways that. the darwinian understanding comes along uh, in the aftermath and offers a rationale for this but the taxonomy is there slightly earlier and this idea that it's sex sexual difference sexual the sexed body that is the foundation for determining who should be in what category to me seemed more important than it had been given credit for so i think that's where that kind of idea started for me
1: great so as you kind of note in the next chapter these, un, these kind of these understandings of biologically inherited characteristics um, kind of incentivized hegemonic powers to control sexual practices between different races through narratives of respectability and, and quote unquote hygiene. Um, and this is something that you explained through the example of British rule in, in colonial India starting in the 18th century. So can you give us an idea of what racial hygiene meant and the kinds of ideas and programs imposed by the British to protect its colonial power? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, so I take up the term racial hygiene, uh, which has normally been used in relation to the eugenicist project of Nazi Germany. But I think it's a useful term to expand a bit more widely because this notion of cleanliness, um, I think, has a sort of significant bearing on all sorts of contexts. So colonial India is a really interesting example, I think, because it was a relatively small number of Europeans trying to work out how to uh, manage what was called at the time the native question. How can a small number of foreigners control a large population and their land in order to extract wealth from it? And race plays an important role in that because it offers some kind of rationality for that process. But again, this is where a kind of Gramscian approach yields results, is that you can't, pure domination is not possible. So another form of uh, rule has to be um, produced. And I think that managing who has sex with whom is is shockingly important to that endeavour. So um, colonial administrators were sitting in rooms in London and Paris and Lisbon and Madrid to work that question out who thousands of miles away should be having sex with whom how should it be understood and what should be made of the children that might issue from those unions and in colonial india in the kind of first period of colonial expansion the simplest solution was seen to be that um, european or english men there should take concubines so It was understood that men needed someone to have sex with, to cook their food, to do their laundry, to look after them when they got sick, Uh, in effect to be a wife. That was understood to be the job of a wife. Um, But it would have been costly for European women to at that moment fill that role. So the solution was Indian women who were after all already there and already had those skills. And so men were encouraged to take concubines or sometimes even just assigned one. And that that seemed like a good solution until people started having children. Um, and while that might have been possible to resolve, had long-term unions not also produced emotional bonds. So these men started to want to send these children to school in England and that sort of seemed like it might cause a bit of trouble. So i would want to include their concubines in their wills and that causes all sorts of trouble. So the question of inheritance starts to... Uh, mess up the kind of contours of racial difference. So if there's lots of mixed-race children running about with claims to European parentage, that starts to undermine racial distinctions. So they have to keep renovating that process. They have to start running state-sanctioned, state-regulated brothels in which the sex workers uh, employed to service Englishmen have to be different from the ones that are having sex with Indian men. So we see these processes um, become completely essential to the management of the everyday workings of empire and the scrupulous need to maintain racial hygiene, to maintain the distinctions between racial groups, really is about managing sex. Not just managing who has sex with whom, but whether or not it's mediated by money, where it happens, what happens to those children. Um, And I think that is often slightly obscured the kind of different ways in which they tried to solve those problems uh because though it was relatively recent our understanding of the actual mechanics of colonial rule are quite dim still um so i wanted to just illuminate one aspect of that because i think it helps us see how we got to where we are
1: yeah that's great um and that idea of uh sort of these developments being improvisatory i think is really key to you know the the argument running through the book, you know, those ideas that are made to seem natural and immutable, but aren't necessarily born of a particular ideology, but kind of uh, pieced together in a bid to maintain power, I suppose. Um.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important because we sometimes start to see the state and state power as this like tremendous force that has complete complete self-knowledge, that Mm. it made race through its deliberate and self-knowing actions rather than it having this improvisatory quality where it solves one problem and then creates another problem mm. it has to solve that and through that process we can see how the categories it comes up with to do so are improvisatory and they are also fallible and we can exploit those, fall- those fallibilities
1: mm. so let's move on kind of a century or so to look at uh, your work on the notion of the so-called national family in britain And how this idea was um, deployed for for hegemonic ends. So you look at the role of the welfare state in the 20th century in disciplining the citizenry into kind of nuclear family units while at the same time creating like racialized outsiders for those who didn't fit into such units. So could you just expand on this idea a little?
2: Yeah, I think there's a a dominant story of the welfare state in Britain that begins after World War II and insists that this was a, the big achievement of the working class. And I think there's not, there is some truth to that story, but I think if we don't trace um, its earlier histories, we run the risk of misunderstanding the ways in which welfare provision is also a contradictory site of subject formation. So it's not only it. And I think anyone who's been at the sharp end of the welfare state of standing in line at the housing office or, or, Having their universal credit card knows that that what we what looks like being given something is actually having your everyday life quite carefully controlled by some larger structure. Um, so I wanted to kind of think about about that contradictory site of welfare provision. And if we go back to uh, before World War One, if we go back to the beginning of the twentieth century, we see that there was a concern with the health of the citizenry in, in Britain because Britain was losing in, um, in the Boer War, the second Boer War against the Africana uh, elites in, um, in Southern Africa. And it was, understood that this was because the health of the populace um, was faltering. And so there was a huge amount of energy expended in trying to uh, improve the health of the ordinary working class Brit for the purpose of winning colonial wars. That was the reason. And it's interesting because when you read some of the reports from that time, they could have been written in the early 2000s because it's very clear that the reason people's health is falling because they've got really poor housing, um, and they can't maintain bourgeois families because they can't afford to. So working class people don't live like that because they don't have the resources to. Uh, and just as the same solutions are now proposed, like education, go and educate young mothers uh, in the inner cities, so that's basically the solution proposed now. Um they did that and they put all this money into being like how oh, we must teach these young women how to look after their children and so on. Um, and that's really the beginning of a kind of welfare provision that's really organized around the health of the national citizen. And so that continues to shape development for the next hundred years. And it's still with us in some ways. Um, but of course the health of the citizen has to be contrasted with the potential for that health to be perverted or undermined by the racial outsider so we see in that post-war period particularly that this idea of the health of the citizen is still with us and has to be maintained through thinking about how working class English people British people specifically live so that is one element, but the other is maintaining the border. So the development of welfare provision and the tightening of national borders work together. And, of course, we still see that. So in many ways, that's the that gives us some of what is still the animating force of Powellism. So Enoch Powell's speech about the rivers of blood. The rivers of blood and the whip hands are the kind of memorable lines. But I think the enduring uh, alchemy of that quite terrifying speech that still really shapes those ideas and powerlism still really shape uh, life in Britain today as Kojo Coram's recent work has continued to to show us Um, is that idea of a man unable to get a hospital place for his wife or a school place for his children, this good, decent, hardworking Englishman. And that continues to animate um, life in Britain, but has these long, long roots in the British polity.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Mm. So next up in the book is a kind of a discussion of the development of racial categories under Blairism or, I suppose, like third-way neoliberalism more generally. Um, and this conjunction starts to see the embrace of, um, as you mentioned earlier, kind of this delimited form of queer sexuality um, that accompanied policy changes like repeal of Section 28, um, introduction of Civil Partnerships Act, while at the same time, the government embarked on um, these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and um, a war on terror that served to kind of criminalise Muslim communities in the UK, Um, you know, these two shifts that you draw connections between. So can you tell us some of the ways in which um, these kind of liberalising attitudes towards gay people and increasing suspicion um, towards Muslim people were kind of connected as part of a larger conjunctural shift in the 1990s and 2000s?
2: Mm -hmm. So I think Blairism is endlessly fascinating for anyone who was born in the kind of late 80s or anyone of that millennial generation, because it was what we grew up under and we're still feeling the effects of it. Uh, And you can really see how much shifted in that decade. And I think that the embrace of... A certain gay subject was really crucial to that. I think even more crucial than perhaps it's been understood to be. So, the repeal of the Thatcherite piece of legislation, Section Twenty Eight, that um, that criminalised uh, teaching about gay rights in by local authorities, happens in two thousand and three, and civil partnerships come a year later, which is very very quick turnaround from from 2003 to not being able... So a teacher in school feels that they can't talk about gay people in any kind of positive way to you can pretty much get civil married. Massive shift that happens in a year. And it's the same year um, as the war on terror really, like, dials up massively with the war in Iraq. So it seems to me that that all happens at the same time in kind of a vertiginous fashion that starts to reshape life in Britain. And... I was trying to think about that and the obvious person to start with is um, Anthony Giddens, a sociologist who was really essential to the development of New Labour's understanding of the world. And he... Is very keen on the idea of plastic sexuality. Of sexuality as something that is chosen and that can offer a form of stability in a rapidly changing world. So the idea being that romantic partnerships might be still the best way to organise society, but that these should be chosen and not enforced by the by the state. So divorce should be available and easy. But the state should do everything it can in positive terms to enforce the centrality of the the couple form as something chosen, as something through which we could access forms of stability. And that stability is crucial to allowing us to uh, adapt to global capitalism, to be a flexible workforce. And for Giddens, the gay couple represent the absolute apotheosis of this. Uh, Option because they have, in his words, had to kind of get along uh, alone without the state's intervention, without the state's support for so long. So for him, gay rights are a kind of... um, And for that project, gay rights are uh, a way of enshrining the modern couple. So why should gay people be locked out and therefore locked out of being adaptable market subjects? So this... I thought was quite fascinating at the same time as single parents, single mothers in particular, become this particular sort of new Labourite scapegoat. Got the folk devil of the Benefit scrounger. Got the invention of the bogus asylum seeker. So there's all of these new threats being minted by new Labour, but there's also all of these, and the terrorists, of course, but then there's also these new shiny modern subjects Um who can embrace the global economy and be aspirational. And I think the Blair years are really important for kind of enshrining um, a new cast of characters in the national imaginary.
1: Yeah, and as part of this kind of focus on the new Labour era, you zone in on a kind of a spate of novels that was released um, in which South Asian men kind of, kind of come out as adhering to a contemporary British model of individualistic sexuality and kind of rejecting family structures that were supposedly characterized by an archaic kind of excess of tradition that you talk about. Um can you put such narratives into context and explain their wider connections to the war on terror and criminalization of, of Muslim communities?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So in many ways these novels were the kind these novels and memoirs were the sort of um the spark of the project. I remember reading them when I when they were coming out between like two thousand and the early 2000 and 2013 and twenty thirteen, let's say, and by Satnam Sangera, Nepal Singh Daliwal, um, Safras Manzo, who all have quite big profiles in the sort of uh, between, like they write, they've written for the, the the Daily Mail, the Times, the Telegraph, sometimes the Guardian. They're journalists of sorts, though not especially rigorous investigative ones. More like they write features and columns and. Uh, one of them, which one S- Sangera no uh, one of them's recently reinvented himself as a kind of uh, liberal critic of empire who can give the balanced the balanced story uh, of the imperial condition anyway, they all wrote these novels and they're all and memoirs, and they're all almost identical to each other. It's extraordinary they you could take a sentence from any one of them and plop it into the other and you just wouldn't notice and they're all really about saying. They're all really about wanting not to have arranged marriages and instead to get jobs in the media and marry white women, which is perfectly reasonable if someone wants to do that, but it's quite something for five-odd books to be published at Top Table at Waterstones um, and in the same period of time that all say exactly this. And it seemed to me quite important that these these novels were doing a lot of work uh, to fortify sexual modernity to fortify the idea of sexual freedom as the site of individual possibility um against the backwards, clannish mores sort of South Asian family structures. Um, and so I think, you know, that was they were writing these at the same time as David Cameron was making his speech about muscular liberalism and about how the crisis of identity uh, among young British Muslims was producing these homegrown terrorists. So it seemed to me important that there was a kind of popular uh, literary genre uh, enforcing that, that idea that David Cameron was making in his speech at Munich in 2011, for example. So I think that that in, in another way is the, one of the reasons that cultural studies as a tradition is important because it allows us to kind of triangulate between these developments in, in culture and these developments in p- political rhetoric and see how they reinforce each other.
1: Mm-hmm. So much stuff on the new Labour era from that kind of tradition as well. So yeah, um, another aspect you focus on regarding this kind of so-called culture clash uh, narratives as the treatment of Muslim women. Um, On the one hand, there's a kind of liberal idea that the invasion of Afghanistan, for example, was about saving women from oppressive practices. On the other hand, you've got this kind of demonization of of now stateless Shamima Begum, for example, um, who traveled to Syria to join IS. So what is the population of these Um, the popularization um, of these very different stories indicate about sexual modernity right now and what hegemonic kind of purposes do they serve?
2: Yeah I think we're living in the shift at the moment I think that Mm. the story of saving Muslim women or to use Spivak's iconic formulation uh, white men are saving brown women from brown men um, I think we're living in the shadows now in the aftermath of that story as having its hegemonic force so i think it's it's still there as a sort of sediment um to use a kind of raymond williams-ish formulation it's a set part of the sedimented logic but the emergent or the ascendant uh logic is something slightly different i think the case of shemima begum is a good example of this so uh the fact of her demonization you know she trends on twitter i think more than almost anyone else who's not a an actor or a singer or kim kardashian she's constantly (laughs) yeah she's constantly trending on twitter and the british media are absolutely obsessed with her um i think every male journalist in the world has claimed to have got an exclusive interview with her at this point it's really something and I think this obsession, um, and of course, you know, she's been subject to uh, a quite frightening and extreme new form of statecraft in the form of citizenship stripping, um, which has been with us since the kind of mid-2000s point of the War on Terror, but it's only just started to be used against British citizens with no other citizenship. And... Begum's interesting in lots of ways because the story that we're being told is that she is an insufficiently victim-like victim and that perhaps victims are no longer worthy of our attention anyway so perhaps it's not even it's not just that Muslim women don't need saving it's that nobody needs saving. There's a kind of logic here that abandonment, cruelty, neglect are what the state is for and that if that is being done to someone, it is being done for for good reason, not just to protect you from them but because cruelty is how states show that they are really in power. So I think there's a kind of spectacle of violence here that is about demonstrating that the state can still do something. It can't, it can't resolve the cost of living crisis. It can't put food on your table. It can't give you decent healthcare. But it can it can make sure that someone else is suffering more. And I think that's what the kind of persistent cruelty towards her, spectaculised in the British media, is about. Um, and I think it matters that uh largely those who most publicly enact this violence against her are also um South Asian and often women. So we've seen uh these days Swan Braverman, but who's more like a kind of pathetic photocopy of the original uh the original kind of sadist in this situation of Pretty Patel, um, who takes what's there in Theresa May's kind of nativist belligerents and gives it a, a fresh spin. She says, I too can do cruelty. I too. It's a kind of equal opportunities sadism here. And I think that these two figures of Shamima Begum and Priti Patel are almost co-constituted in the national imaginary as a way of disorganising um, racial politics, right? It says, look, everyone can be uh, anyone could be abandoned and anyone could do the abandoning. I think this is a very important moment of improvisatory statecraft that will, it will take some time to understand what the longer term implications are going to be.
1: Yeah. And sort of untangling that helps us in kind of the task of understanding how people are kind of inculcated in a racist, racist ideology without, as you mentioned, kind of reducing it to false consciousness. Um,
2: yeah, absolutely. I don't think Pretty Patel is suffering from false consciousness. I think she knows perfectly well what she's up to. I think that the task is to understand her as part of the racist assemblage that we live with. Um, and that she's not a kind of dupe or a token. If this was tokenism, I don't think there would be so many of them. So it seems to me that we're looking at something
1: quite different to that. Mm, exactly. Um, so let's kind of move towards kind of finishing up and looking at your final chapter, which is um, on the treatment of children under sexual modernity. Um, And this is where you look at the recent emergence of seemingly contradictory um, conditions converging around issues of gender and sexuality education in schools. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how the figure of the child um, has shaped sexual modernity and what recent kind of moral panics and controversies reveal about contemporary race and gender politics?
2: Hmm. So the control of children's sexuality is really important to the sort of Foucauldian paradigm. So he talks about schools and the families are site for the control of children's sexuality, making sure the children are not masturbating, for example. That's kind of big part of how the architectures of boarding schools um, and the management of the nuclear family become uh, tools of governance in the sort of eighteenth century. 18th, 19th centuries, but that, and so in, in many ways that's still with us, right? So the, the trope around which people seem to be mobilised, most effectively and powerfully mobilised is the idea that someone is sexually defiling children. So we can see that in all of the 90s panics about stranger danger, people remember the infamous Brass Eye episode, um, Chris Morris satirised this, and it's amazing that he's had any kind of career since, frankly, because um, people really were up in arms. Um, and this is an incredibly powerful trope. So you know, the whole QAnon phenomenon uh, is really about about this, and the transphobic moral panic is also completely organized, or well, not completely, but significantly organized around children, and the. The easy answer to this is that this is because children are understood to be a site of innocence. But I think we need to kind of drill down a bit into what kind of innocence this is, because if children were understood to be innocent and deserving, then people would give a damn that children were every day starving, every day experiencing the violence of war and famine, and that seems to have little mobilising power. But the idea that children are being sexually um Abused is is very mobilising. And uh, there's some really interesting work by Julia O'Connell Davidson about this in which she suggests that it's because we understand children to be outside of the structures of contract. So if contract is an essential feature of modern life, that we have a certain kind of freedom to say yes or no to things, and that's also a site of anxiety. So we might think about someone like... Um, froms idea of fear of freedom right so our freedom to enter or exit contracts is, is understood to be crucial to freedom in general um and sexual freedom is a huge part of that right that the idea is that we that our sexual freedom is a freedom of choice and we understand kids children are meant to be outside of contracts they're not able to enter into contracts um they're not able to enter into sexual agreements and that's quite right but it. One of the reasons that we put so much emphasis on children, it is suggested, is because they're outside of the adult world of choice. And much of this, uh, much of the role of children in fomenting these moral panics is about maintaining that logic, that children are outside of the world of choice. So if a child can say, I wish to live as a boy, I am a boy, and they have been assigned female at birth by a doctor that's understood to be uh them entering the adult world of choice for which they have no which which they should be excluded from so they function to kind of um shore up that distinction to give us somewhere that is free of that anxiety so i think that's the kind of key role that they play
1: mm, great Thank you for that. Um, I think we've had a nice little whistle-stop tour of like the context of the book. <laughs> so I'm just going to kind of wrap up a little bit and just um, ask the question I ask everyone, which is, do you have any uh, anything you're working on at the moment, any new projects, anything on the horizon?
2: Yeah, I think it's, a, it's a, I mean, an interesting transitional period in some ways, because I've been thinking about the ideas in this book for a long time. Um, uh, I wrote it the actual words on the page I wrote in, in about a year, but that all the ideas that came into it were a long time in the making. And so now I'm I'm kind of trying to find out what I'm going to do next. I'm trying out a few different things. And I suppose the thing that I'm interested in is how our desires surface against the backdrop of our deteriorating economic conditions and how those desires are used against us by uh, by forms of state power not the most upbeat projects i promised myself i would do something more upbeat about the ways people resist these conditions but um i think that understanding the intricate mechanisms of of how we live against and along the grains of power is kind of is kind of where my interest lies so i'm still kind of working on some new ideas around that uh some of which might be about undercover policing so that's the kind of uh a little glimpse of what that might be about
1: okay sounds really interesting you don't always have to keep things jolly anyway <laughs> um so just remind me when this book is out
2: the book is out on the 16th of may it's out with verso um you can i think pre-order on the website and uh, i'll be doing some events in may around the book uh, and probably after that as well so uh yeah please do
1: read it or get in touch if you want to hear more. Okay, fab. Thank you um, for that. Everyone pick up a book, uh, a copy of Sita's book. Um, And thank you so much, Sita, for um, really great answers and for joining me today.
2: Thanks so much.